Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Audrey N, Sue L, Veronica C, and Nancy J. We'd ask that you, if you could please keep your microphones muted at all stages during the during the um, workshop, and if you need to step away from your screens at any stage. Mm. Just disconnect your camera. So we will now go turn the meeting over to Harlan G in Dale, Arizona. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Maria. It's so good to be here today, and uh, I hope everybody is well. Just a little bit of a reminder that tonight, except for Arizona and Hawaii, we are changing our clocks back an hour. That will not affect the Saturday morning meeting that you're at right now. I will adjust so you don't have to. The only ones that will have to adjust on Saturday morning are people who are tuning in from Arizona because now I will start at 11 a.m. rather than 10 a.m. so that no one else has to change and there'll be no change except in the state of Arizona for this meeting. Our evening meetings on Scottsdale will all begin Sunday through Friday, one hour earlier as of tomorrow. As of tomorrow, they will start one hour earlier. I also want to just remind all of you, registration is open for the OA birthday in January. That is going to be the 13th, 14th, and 15th of January in Los Angeles, California. And that will be a very, very exciting convention. I hope that we get 2,000. If we get more than that, that would be fantastic, but I'm hoping we hit at least 2,000 people. That would be fabulous. So we need you. Uh, also, White Plains, New York uh, is coming up on the 9th, 10th, and 11th of December. And there'll be something in the chat, not from me, but from someone smarter than me, that will put something in the chat that will can get you to, to so you can register for this, if you can make it to White Plains, it's going to be the 9th, 10th, and 11th of December, and that'll be in White Plains, New York. That'll be a big book weekend, uh, but the, the, the birthday, 13th, 14th, and 15th of January, we're hoping for 2,000 people. We are in the Chapter 5, How It Works, and this was the third to the last chapter written for this book. Everything was in the bank, except for how it works into action and a vision for you as of about autumn, around September or October of 1938. And this chapter, he knew that he had to codify a program of recovery so that these alcoholics could not slip through the six-step program that had been adapted from the Oxford groupers. And we left off on page 59, where it says, here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. I'm very quickly going to go through something. 
I'm not going to read the steps. You, you hear them at every meeting. There's no reason. And during these podcasts, I talk about each step, the history of each step. I talk about the prayers and promises and warnings in each step. And I talk about specifically how to work them. So there's really no reason to go through that at this time. But let's just take a look at the steps in a way that may, it's not going to help you work them. It's just something to think about. Step number one is admission. Steps two through seven, submission. Steps eight and nine, restitution. And steps 10, 11, and 12, reconstruction. Once again, step one, admission. Steps two through seven, submission. Steps eight and nine, restitution. And steps 10, 11, and 12 is reconstruction. Just something to think about. Let's go to page 60. But before we begin on page 60, let's take a look at where our 12 steps come from. And let's just remember that we have a lot of history here because the steps didn't just pop out of the thin air. But what I'm reading from is page 263 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. In the story, he sold himself short. And this is the story of Earl Treat. And Earl was the one who founded AA in Chicago with Sylvia Kaufman. Step one in the Oxford group was complete deflation. Step two, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Step three was a moral inventory. Step four was confession. Step five was restitution. And step six was continued work with other alcoholics. So this is the, the six-step program that was not designed by the Oxford group. It was adapted by the alcoholics who were in the Oxford group. The Oxford group didn't talk about steps. They talked about the four absolutes. They wanted you to work toward being absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. Those four absolutes, again, are absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. And these guys were having trouble being anything but absolutely bombed. And so that's one of the reasons that the alcoholics pulled out of the Oxford group movement. And hence you have Alcoholics Anonymous today. Let's go to page 260. This is after a description of the steps. Oh, there's one other thing I'd like to mention, and I would be remiss if I didn't. Part of the history behind our steps is something that came from Sam Shoemaker. Sam Shoemaker was an Episcopal person. He was an Episcopal minister, and he was the rector at the Cavalry Mission in New York City, and he was the front man for the Oxford Group movement in the United States. And Sam Shoemaker would talk to the boys about 
the four impediments to God. What is an impediment? An impediment is something which stops or slows progress. An impediment is something that stops or slows progress. And what are those four impediments? And he wrote them down in a book called Twice Born Ministers. And it's on page 93 in a book called Twice Born Ministers. These are the four impediments to God. And he knew that in order for an alcoholic to achieve sobriety, he was going to have to get to God. And these could be and would be the impediments before him. The first impediment is a resentment that you will not let go of. And that became step four. The next one is a secret that you will not tell. And that became step five. The next one is a harmful thrill that you will not stop. And that became steps six and seven. And last but certainly not least, a restitution that you will not make. And that became steps eight and nine. And if you look at the language, you look at the language in our big book of AA, you are warned over and over again. If you hang on to these resentments, if you do not do a full disclosure in step five, if you do not work toward the release of your defects of character every day of your life, if you hold back and don't make restitutions, you will not recover. You will not recover under those conditions. You must be prepared to abandon yourself to do everything that those impediments are implying. Very, very important, very important. So Sam Shoemaker, who was introduced many times by Bill as a co-founder of AA, which he wasn't obviously, but Bill had wonderful, great respect for him and thought he was wonderful. And Sam Shoemaker has addressed uh, conventions of AA. There are talks of Sam Shoemaker at the Long Beach, California convention of AA in 1960. You had like, it would be almost like you went to the baseball game and Lou Gehrig is playing first and Babe Ruth is playing right field or pitching and, and you know, all the all-stars. You had Long Beach, California uh, 1960, the, you know, you had Bill Wilson speaking, Lois Wilson speaking, Ebby speaking, Sam Shoemaker speaking. I mean, it was like, this was like the, 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 the giant of the giants, the giants of the giants was speaking at this convention and there are tapes of it. They're a little hard to hear, um, but you can hear them and they will speak to you, you know, and he introduces Sam as an, as a co-founder of AA, which of course he wasn't. Okay. We're on page 60. Many of us exclaimed, what an order. I can't go through with it. Now I'm done with the 12 steps. You read them on your own. I don't want to take the time to read them. Many of us exclaimed, what an order. I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. 
somewhere in the 1970s or 80s, or maybe even as recently as the 90s, somebody had little to do. So they said, well, the principle of this step is honesty and the principle of this step is whatever it is and uh, you know whatever that may be. But that is not what he's referring to. He's referring to the steps. Bill was dead when, that, when all that happened. We are not saints. What is the only step, by the way, now that we're on the subject of this word perfect, what is the only step you have to work perfectly? Step one. You don't have to be the perfect sponsor. You don't have to be the perfect four step. You don't do the perfect four step. You don't have to be perfect at anything. You can just be very good. But the only step that I have to work perfectly today is step number one. And since I spoke on the Italian meeting yesterday, it's passo prima. Passo prima is step one. I listened to Barbara as she was translating it. And while we're on the subject also, if you're looking at Roz's little Hollywood Square, yes, USDC still sucks. Okay, let's continue. All right, now, we are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. Very important sentence. When he says the word grow, what that lets me know is I'm working toward a better understanding, not under, I'm working toward a better plateau of existence in my spiritual life. I didn't mean to use the word understanding. Understanding can be misleading because I'm not ever going to understand any of this or most of it. And I don't have to understand it. And I think one of the mistakes that we make in OA today is we want to gather this intellectual understanding of everything before we move forward. And that can be fatal. Because the truth of the matter is an understanding of any of this, A, is impossible, and B, is paralyzing. So we really want to think of ourselves as growing toward a better spiritual life rather than understanding. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. This line of progress rather than perfection is very misquoted and misused. I've heard hundreds and hundreds of people over the years that came to meetings with chocolate on their breath and they were eating and they said they were eating and they look at you and they smile and they say, well, progress, not perfection. No, that doesn't mean I can eat chocolate. That means if I want to eat chocolate, I better get on the phone and get somebody on the phone and say, hey, it's Harlan. I want to eat chocolate. Hey, I want to eat whatever. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. So you hear a lot of times that that sentence is misquoted. It is not a license to go and eat chocolate. It is something that we use to grow toward. Remember in 10, we continue. In 11, we improve. In 12, we practice. This is what they're talking about. We're growing toward a better relationship with my higher power. Very important. Now, our description of the alcoholic, 
What is the description of the alcoholic? The doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution and more about alcoholism. Those four chapters are all dedicated to, to step one. There is the history of step two in Bill's story on page eight, nine. And we see the history of step 10 in Bill's story on pages 11, 12, whatever, 13, 14, 15. And we see it, but the doctor's opinion, which originally was chapter one, and then they moved it. So rather than take time later, the reason that it was moved, and this is not documented, but the reason it was moved is the book is supposed to be for alcoholics, but by alcoholics, and Silky was not an alcoholic. And since he wrote those eight pages with a little inner, with a little thing here and there from Bill. But since he wrote that and he not being an alcoholic, it was moved to the Roman numeral section of the book. But the bottom line is the doctor's opinion, but without the doctor's opinion, there is no book, there is no program. There, there is, none of it makes any sense. If you have no explanation of the disease, which you get in the doctor's opinion, then none of this makes any sense. It just, it doesn't make any sense. You're trying to solve something or you're trying to, 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 to help something, but you don't know what the problem is. So without the doctor's opinion, it just, nothing makes any sense. So thank God we have it. And thank God for the little doctor who loved drums. But these four chapters, the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution and more about alcoholism are all step one. And what is the description of the alcoholic? An alcoholic has two things and a, and a subcategory. The two things that the alcoholic has are a physical allergy to alcohol, that when the alcoholic drinks alcohol, that there sets up an involuntary but automatic, absolutely automatic reaction that he physically craves more of the same. And that the more the alcoholic drinks, the more he wants. The more he wants, the more he drinks, the more he drinks, the more he wants. That is not present in the normal temperate drinker. The normal drinker does not drink more because they drank at all. They drink what they drink and they're done. You know how you, I always fantasized about being a normal eater. But when I really look at the normal eater, I would, I would jump out the window if I didn't have a spiritual awakening. They eat a little half a thing. They eat a little of this. You know, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So this physical allergy plus the mental twist. And what else is there? There's the mental blank spot, which is the sidekick of the mental twist. But if you also look, look at this, food does something for me. Alcohol does something for the alcoholic that it does not do for the normal temperate drinker. What does alcohol do for the alcoholic? Not two, but four. What does it do? It instantly changes their perspective of reality. I'm going to say that again. Alcohol instantly changes the alcoholic's perception 
of reality. That's why we drink. What did Dr. Silkworth call this? He called it the effect. The effect is a sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly when we eat certain foods. When I eat um, $100,000 bars, when I eat a $100,000 bar, my perception of reality is instantly changed. Everything becomes groovy and beautiful and fantastic. It's sort of like the Wizard of Oz. When you look at the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy is in this sort of sepia, gray, not exactly black, not exactly white. She's in this movie. She's kind of, you know, she's going here and then the tornado hits and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, what happens? Zoom. She's in this technicolor world. Wow. Where everything is in deep rich color. And that's exactly what happens to me when I eat greasy French fries from the Red Hot Ranch on Devon Avenue anytime between 1960 and about 1980. What happened to me was those greasy, lousy French fries that would eat through the bag when I ate those, my perception of reality was instantly changed for the better. When alcoholics, drug addicts uh, commit suicide, they always do it sober. They never do it drunk because the sobriety that they're feeling, the abstinence that we feel is too painful for words. We cannot bear the pain of abstinence. That's why we go back to the food over and over and over and over again. Because the pain of life minus that food is overwhelming to us. And our brain is screaming out for the food. No, the brain is screaming out, change the channel change the channel. I can't bear that they're not sticking to my script. I can't bear that the world isn't paying enough attention to me. I can't bear the unwe, the pain, the horrible, horrible pain of life as I'm living it. I need a Tootsie Roll. I need a drink. I need drugs. I need gambling. I need the sex. I need whatever it is you need, the, the whatever, because we want to change the channel. And for us, food changes the channel instantly. Somebody's unmuted, guys. Food changes the channel immediately. And it gives me a perspective that is more to my liking. The only problem is for the alcoholic, for the drug addict, the sensation lasts much longer. All I get out of this freaking deal, now tell me this isn't the short end of the stick here. The only thing we get out of the deal is about maybe nine seconds of bliss. And after about nine, 10 seconds, the high wears off and you're not only eating, but now you're hating the fact that you're eating and you wish you weren't. But for nine or 10 seconds, 
we would sell our soul to the devil. Dr. Silkworth tells me that in pursuance of this effect, we will pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. So that's the how and the why of it, boys and girls. So our description of the alcoholic, physical allergy, what does Dr. Silkworth teach us? Any description of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. Now the mental twist and the sidekick of the mental twist is the mental blank spot. And the mental blank spot is that eradicator, that eraser that erases any memory that we may have about the horror and the torture and the hell of the food. We cannot recall with sufficient force the horror of the food that we ate yesterday, 15 minutes, you know, not 15, but 15 minutes ago, whatever that I was going to say 15 years ago, 15 minutes ago, we cannot because of the mental blank spot. And the mental blank spot says, it'll be okay this time. The mental twist and the mental blank spot say, it'll be okay this time. And what's one of the jobs of the ego? Make me feel good right now. Right now, I need to feel good. Not later, not 10 minutes from now. I need to feel good right now. So essentially, the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps will do for me slower what the, what the food did for me instantly, but with none of the devastating side effects. I'm going to say that again, because it's important. And I can see by the looks on some of your faces that you're like, what? The spiritual awakening will do for me a little slower than the food, because the food is instant. It'll do for me slower what the food does for me instantly, but with none of the devastating side effects. I've never gone to the cardio the cardiologist and he said, maybe you shouldn't sponsor so many people. I've never had the doctor say to me, maybe you shouldn't do so many 10 steps. I've never had the doctor say to me through the years, maybe you shouldn't pray so much. Maybe you shouldn't make as many outreach calls and take as many outreach calls as you take. But they have yelled and screamed and medicated and, and just tore into me like a monkey on a cupcake because of how much I weighed because of the food. They have tore into me like you wouldn't believe over the food. So our description of the alcoholic is the first four chapters. The chapter to the agnostic, chapter four, we agnostics, is to the agnostic. What's an agnostic? It's not an atheist and it's not a believer. It's someone who not quite sure. They just, maybe they don't have enough information yet, but all that's required to recover is, do you believe or are you willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? And if you're willing to believe, you don't have to believe, you have to be willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. You are on your way. You are ready to go on to the rest of the steps. You do not have to have a degree in theology. You do not have to have a deep understanding of God and his ways. You don't have to have credentials in history, philosophy, religion, or any of it. Stop waiting for some understanding, for some intellectual understanding. You see, oftentimes we go back to our roots as children. And when we were kids in school, we were told 
study chapter seven. So we went home and we read chapter seven and we talked about chapter seven and we called our friends and said, what did you get for number three? And what did you get for number six? And then on Friday, there'd be a test on chapter seven and you would pass the test on chapter seven. And after you pass the test on chapter seven, you'd never think about chapter seven again in your life. And so we apply that to our recovery. We want to understand before we move forward. Just the opposite will be the most effective. Move forward, take action. Stop waiting for an intellectual understanding that's not coming. The intellectual understanding is not on its way. Willingness is not on its way until action is taken. You cannot think your way into right acting. You must act your way into right thinking. And that means we act before we understand. After the action, you have a much better understanding. Will I ever understand God? No. But let's just understand this. Six days a week, I walk three miles a day. Do I have an understanding of exercise philosophy or physiology rather? No, I do not. Can I tell you what happens when a human being exercises? I cannot. Do I have any knowledge of medicine or, or the human body to explain what happens when I'm walking for those three miles? I do not. All I know is that by taking the action and walking the three miles, I look better, I feel better, I weigh less, and the doctors don't scream at me anymore. That's what I know. I don't know what happens to the leg muscles and the blood and the heart and the lungs and the endorphins and the hormones and the blah, blah, blahs and the blah, blah, blahs. I just do it. I just do it. This has to be the same thing. You just take action and never mind the understanding. It's a lifetime of processing information and it's liquid. You never get it. Now, I know how to add two and two and make four out of it. That's about all the math I know. Two and two is four. Beyond that, I'm a lost soul lost soul. I'm not going to tell you what I got in math on my ACT scores. Not unless you, well, I'm not even going to go there. But the bottom line is I'm not telling you what I got, but it was not good. It was not good. My mother was crying for weeks. But the bottom line is, is that two and two is four. This isn't like that. My knowledge of two and two is four is a solid. It never changes. Your knowledge of this is going to change Tomorrow, the next day, in three months, in a year, and in 10 years. You will look at things differently as you experience life. Your paradigm will shift. Your vantage point will shift. Things will shift around. So an understanding of what's going on is virtually impossible. It's impossible. This is not an intellectual exercise. It's not an intellectual thing. 
Biology 101 is an understandable commodity. Math 116, algebra, geometry, these are, once you get it, you get it. You get it. This isn't like that. Stop waiting for that. It's not coming. Let's continue. And our personal adventures before and after, those are the stories in the back of the big book, make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own life. We just got done discussing what does that mean, that we were alcoholic. Physical allergy, twist of the mind. Physical allergy, twist of the mind. It doesn't matter whether you're anorexic or you're bulimic or you're like me, you're morbidly obese, or you're moderately overweight. It does not matter. It does not matter. If you are a compulsive overeater, you have an unnatural reaction to food that sets you up with a craving for more of the same. And you have a twist of the mind that drives you irresistibly into the arms of a crunch bar against your will. That's why we say we're compulsive overeaters. What does compulsive mean? It means we have a compulsion, an urge beyond our will to do this. That's why we identify ourselves as compulsive overeaters. Because why does everybody else need to know? Hi, I'm Harlan. <clears throat> I'm a compulsive overeater. And I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. What do you care? There's one person that needs to hear me say, hi, I'm Harlan. I'm a compulsive overeater. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. The only person that really needs to know that is me. Because if I don't know that I'm a compulsive overeater, I won't see the need to work the program. Why do we say that in the meetings? Why do we say that? So everyone else will know? Hardly. It's so we can hear ourselves saying it. You go to meetings now, I'm a sugar addict, I'm an emotional eater, I'm a this, I'm a that, I, I'm a whatever, I'm a so-and-so. You say you're a compulsive overeater, you've said it all. You've said it all. It encompasses the whole gamut of it. There's not a part of it that that doesn't include that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, I got a profession. I make a lot of money. I've got two cars in the garage. I've got a chicken in every pot. I've got a summer home in Vail. I've got a winter home in Scottsdale. I've got this, I've got that. That's not what they're talking about. What they're talking about is you can't stop eating now that you want to. And every time you start eating, you can't stop. That the urge to eat is beyond what you can control. And that life is getting by you because you see yourself taking action after action in pursuit of this food that you don't want to take. You wish you could stop. But in spite of your best efforts, you cannot. Let's continue. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And that's very important. And take a look at some things. Take a look at some names. And if you're too young to remember who these people are, you can Google them. But I'm 68, so I can only go to the points of reference that I have during my life. Karen Carpenter, 
Mama Cass Elliott, John Candy, Chris Farley, Fatty Arbuckle, President William Howard Taft. What did these people have in common? They were at the top of their game, the top of their game. They had money, fame, fortune. They were at the top, yet they're dead. They're dead because of a disease that they couldn't buy their way out of. They couldn't manage with money. Fred was a partner in a well-known accounting firm. Had wonderful family, had money, everything money could buy. Yet he was an alcoholic. Chapter three. Karen Carpenter was 34 years old. She had the voice of an angel. Money to burn. Everything was at her disposal. Yet at age 34, she was dead. Mama Cass Elliot, voice of an angel, Jewish girl, dead, dead as a doornail at 400 pounds from a disease that she couldn't buy her way out of. President Taft, William Howard Taft, he couldn't get elected dog catcher now. He was over 300 pounds. His girth was so huge that when he was elected president, he couldn't bathe in the bathtub provided by the White House. He had to have it ripped out at his own expense and have his bathtub brought out from Ohio so he could take a bath because he couldn't fit in the bathtub that was provided to the president. He had money, he had fame, he had fortune, he was the president of the United States, and yet that didn't help him. He could not manage, He probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And how many of us have tried to make deals with God? God, get me a husband. God, get me a wife. God, get my daughter to stop drinking or drugging or get my son off drugs or, and I'll do whatever you say. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. God doesn't shape up when you lay that on him. That's quid pro quo. That's Latin for you do this and I'll do that. That doesn't work. But what does work is a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. So B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. Human power didn't give you this disease. I know you blame your mother and I know you blame your dad or you blame your neighbor or you blame your spouse. They didn't make you compulsive overeaters. Oh, they may have made you hungry now and again. They may have really piqued your appetite every once in a while and they may have pissed you off but they didn't make you into compulsive overeaters any more than you could make a seal play the accordion. So the bottom line is no human power gave you this illness. No human power is going to help you in this endeavor. Your, your recovery must come from a higher power. And that means above the level of human power. Very important. C that God could and would if he were sought. So many of us, like me, walked around with ideas in their heads 
that God was going to be gracious to you, but not to me. I was somehow a victim. I was somehow screwed where you were fortunate. You were rich and I was poor and you were beautiful and I was ugly and you were smart and I was dumb. And somehow this God got to be my enemy. I believed that there was a God, but I believed that he was out to screw me over because it seemed to me that nothing good ever happened in my life. I was alive. I had friends. I had a program. I had a book and chose not to use them. But I had to adapt over time an idea of a God who would and does intervene in my life in all areas. That when I am sad, when I'm lonely, when I'm whatever it is I am, I have uncertainties. I've been around here for 43 years. I'm going home to Chicago on Wednesday. And that's great. I'm really glad to be going home. There's people there I really want to see. There's people there I wouldn't be disappointed if I didn't see. No, I'm kidding. But the bottom line is, is that I really look forward to it. Now, I was just home a few weeks ago, but I'm looking forward to this. This is the wedding of a daughter of a friend of mine who I love with all my heart. Not the daughter, the friend. He's a wonderful friend. I've been friends with him for 55 years. He's a, as wonderful a person as you're going to meet in this world. I'm so glad to be celebrating with him the wedding of his only daughter. But yet I'm not going to be making any money while I'm running around Chicago. And it costs me money. I was just there. It costs me every time I go home. It's about a $3,000 endeavor. And that doesn't even take into account what the money I could have made if I was here working. So every time I go home, it's at least $3,000 to go home. That's a lot of money. I was just there. I was just there. So sometimes you just got to bite the bullet. But I know that the same thing that applies in my life applies to this. Every time I go to the grocery store, I take a look in the cart or the basket. When I go up to the checkout, if I'm checking myself out, I still do it. it or if I'm checking out with the person, I still do it. I look in there and I say, is there anything in here that God would not want you to have? And if the answer is no, I know that he'll provide for me. He always has and he always will. But if there's something in there like cake or cookies or whatever that I know God would not want me to have, then I have to take a stop, look, and listen. I'm going to go home. I'm not going home to rob a bank. I'm not going home to mug old ladies. I'm going home to celebrate the wedding of a precious child of a dear friend. You know what? God's going to bless that. God is going to bless. I'm going to be okay. That's why I can get on the plane and I can be okay. I don't have to worry. God's got it. And when I walk to God, he runs to me. Doctors have been signing my death warrant for 68 years 
They have been putting me in the ground and telling my mother and father he's going to die. And they have been putting me on a death watch my entire life. And I'm going home proud. Proud. You know why I'm proud? Because I do more right things for myself today than wrong things. That I am finally, after all these years, the friend to myself that I have needed in me since I was born. Yes, I'm down over 500 pounds since the beginning. That's nice. I like that. Yes, I can walk. Yes, I can get in and out of a car most of the time. Yes, I can I can function. I can wear clothes. You know what I'm not going to have to do when I go back to Chicago? I'm not going to have to grit my teeth and be scared that God forbid they lose my luggage or God forbid I spill something on a shirt. How am I going to get a shirt? Well, I don't need Omar the tent maker. I don't need size seven extra large. I can go to I can go to any store I want and get something that fits. Worst case scenario, they lose my luggage. I'll go to Walmart, I'll get some underwear, I'll go to a men's store the next day, I'll get a tie and I'll get a shirt and I'll buy a jacket and I'll go and a pair of pants and I'll go to the wedding. I'll be okay. It's not the end of the world. That's freedom. That's where you fly when you're emancipated from those absolutely nightmarish fears that come from this disease. I didn't even mention the plane. Last time I went home, they canceled my Fakakta flight back to Phoenix. And I had a, I went from a first class ticket to a middle seating coach. I was scared of that middle seat. I don't, I hate to tell you, I was scared. All my years in program, I did 10 million 10 steps. Oh God, I got to go on the middle seat. Oh, Vea's mirror. You know what? I was fine. I was fine. I fit. I didn't need the extender belt. And what is with these flight attendants, by the way? You know, I'm the fattest guy on the plane. My stomach is in the next row. And at the end of their safety demonstration, now who was it that needed the extender belt? I don't know. Maybe it's this woman over here that weighs 91 or me. What's your guess? What's your guess? You know, I don't know why they, if they doing that to bust my chops or what? I don't know. But I, I, I thought they were yanking my chain when they were doing that. And now who was it that needed the extender belt again? Yeah, right. Yeah. If I had a pie, I would have thrown it in her face like soupy sales. But the bottom line is I don't need the extender belt today. I don't need to, if so if I have to go on a middle seat, okay. If I have to go on an aisle, uh, um, a window seat, okay. It's, it's okay. As long as I get where I'm going. And, and what they do is they give you credit. So, cause I paid for a first class ticket. 
Then they put me in coach. They gave me a bunch of miles and they upgraded me on the way back from Los Angeles. They upgraded me from coach to first class. Okay, I'll take it. That's fine. They upgraded me. And Los Angeles, a real short flight. It's one hour. You're actually only in the air 58 minutes. But the bottom line is, okay, I'll take it. It's fine. Deal's done. We're good. That God could and would if he were sought. That no matter how my heart is breaking, no matter how alone I may feel, no matter how the world is spinning away from my will and my script, no matter what is going on, I feel the hand on my shoulder that says, I'm here with you. And that takes work. That doesn't just come because you pray for me. It doesn't just come because you want to believe that. It comes because you work at that. You have to take action for that to be reality in my experience. And I have to continue working at it. I have to continue working at it. What's step 10? Continue. What's step 11? Improve. What's step 12? Practice. Continue, improve, and practice. So we have a God in our lives that is available to us. It doesn't have to be called God. It doesn't have to be the God of the Catholics or the Jews or the Protestants or the Buddhists or the Muslim or whatever. It doesn't have to be that. I'm not saying religion is bad. I'm not, follow your religion. That's fine. I'm certainly not going to tell you not to do that. Who the heck am I to tell you that? But you can create and choose your own conception of God from within that framework. Or you can break away and say, I'm going to celebrate Festivus for the rest of us, or I'm going to celebrate whatever it is. Festivus, if you don't watch Seinfeld, you won't know what that is. That's a Seinfeld reference. But the bottom line is you can choose your own conception of God, whatever works for you. And if you have a conception that doesn't work for you, change it. I can't change it for you. You don't need my permission to change it. I'm not telling you you have to change it. I'm just saying, does your perception of God work for you in the present day, in the present moment? If it does, fantastic. Hey, if it works, don't fix it. But if it's not working and you see God as this adversary, you see God as some entity that is out to screw you over, it's going to be very difficult to recover under those conditions. Very, very difficult. Okay, let's continue. So these ABCs are something that you see, or you hear at a lot of meetings. Now, I'm going to give you a little history. These are fun things to know. This, what I'm going to tell you, is not going to help you recover. It's not going to bring you closer to God. I'm just going to give it to you because it's a little entertainment, FYI kind of thing. At a place called the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles, California, in December of 1938, there was a guy 
whose wife got a copy, a monolith, a mimeographed copy. Remember when we were kids and we would take tests in grammar school? You could It smelled just like Elmer's glue all. The teachers would mimeograph the tests. Remember that? Okay. This was a mimeograph, but they called it monolith, copy of the big book. And this guy, Morty Joseph, Morty Joseph, his wife got a copy in New York City of this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. It was to be printed April the 10th, 1939. This was December of 38, almost January. It's almost Christmas time. And Morty Joseph and these 10 poor souls were brought to the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles, California by their wives, probably by the ear, to get cured of their alcoholism. And Morty and none of them had ever been to a meeting of AA in their entire life. They didn't know how to conduct a meeting. They didn't know what a meeting was. They had no idea. So Morty Joseph opens up this book, which wasn't a book. It was just a series of pages. And he comes upon how it works. So he says, huh, this must be pretty important. I'm going to read how it works here. Here's how it works. And he reads, rarely have we seen a person fail. And he stops after the ABCs. He says, all right, I'm going to stop reading. I won't read you the whole book. And they had a meeting. I don't know what else they did at the meeting that day, but they had a meeting. It was the first meeting, and I'm putting that in air quotes, it was the first meeting of its kind west of the Mississippi River, and it took place in Los Angeles, California. And he stopped where it said, see that God could and would if he were sought. That same practice of reading how it works up to and including the ABCs is in practice today some 85 years later. We are still doing that at most of our meetings. Almost every meeting that I went to when I lived at home in Chicago, almost every meeting that I attended, we began the meetings not with a preamble like you have today that OA wrote, we started the meetings by reading, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, blah, blah, blah. And they would stop reading after C that God could and would if he were sought. And that is how we started every meeting for generations after Morty was gone. That's, he, it was just, is it odd or is it God? As I said, this information won't help you recover. It won't help you work your steps. But I think for a lot of us, it's kind of fun to learn some of the history behind what it is we do and how it got started. All right. Um, being convinced we were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that? And what do we do? Now, we're not going to go any further. We're going to just stop right there. Now, next Saturday, there's no change in the time unless you are in the state of Arizona. You are in the state of Arizona. 
then this meeting will begin one hour later. Um, the bottom line is, I hope that this is helpful. I know we're going very slow. We're going very, very slow as we normally do, but I'm giving you some history behind what we're doing. And I'm hoping that not only will that entertain you, but it will sort of give you an insight into God's handiwork as it manifests throughout the things that we do, the things that we say, and how they got started. So before I turn this over for questions and answers, and I know we're a little early, next Saturday, I'm going to be doing this from my hotel room in Chicago on my phone. There'll be no interruption. We'll just do the same thing we normally do. I will just be on my phone in Chicago rather than here 